please stand and join us as we sing. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid. Bearing all my sin and shame.
seated and turn your attention to the baptistry. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Blake Leverett. I'm the mid-school pastor here at Hoffmantown. And this is my friend Cody Teeters. And Cody has decided to get baptized today. And as you can tell, we don't have a video or anything like that because he's moving back to Florida this week. And he wanted to get baptized today in front of all of his family and friends here in Albuquerque. And so, uh, Cody, um, have you solely given your heart to Jesus and trust him as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I have. So why do you want to get baptized? Because God's done so much in my life, I just want to show everybody what he's done. Well, Cody, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. great way to start the service. Don't you agree? Amen. We're glad to have you here today. We look forward to seeing what God's up to and what he wants to do in this service. If you're visiting with us, we really appreciate your being here. We want you to know that we want you to feel welcome. And whether we're going to do that in just a few moments, we're going to have uh, you, if you would, to take a card. Now that little card's in the seat in front of you. Do I hear a ring? If you don't hear it, Lord, I'm coming home. <laughs> we want you to take that little card, just fill that out, give it to us at some time in the service, during the offertory, when you leave, give it to an usher. We'd really appreciate you doing that. And along that line, on the 20th of July is our next discovery class. Now, we ask all people who are thinking about joining us to go through that discovery class. There'll be more information coming up. What it'll do, it's not, not us checking you out, it's you checking us out. And you know if you do join what you're getting into, where we are, and what we believe, and where we stand. But right now, I want everybody to stand up and look around and find five people. And if you don't see them smiling before you leave and go back. Okay, <laughs> there are a couple of events coming up, and of course you know Wednesday night's our Truth Project. We try to give you a little bit of a, a preview of that, and you'll see that in one short video. The other one is awfully short, but it's about the Sportsman's Banquet, which will be the 19th, and hopefully all of you men and ladies too that like the outdoors would respond by going to that. I just want you to notice on the, on the video though, if it's the same one. The fish he's holding up is a largemouth bass. I just want y'all to know that. Anyway, watch the videos. <laughs> History. What is a lie? Historical revisionism, is it not? What is the definition of the present? It's what's happening, man. Right now. What is that? Without history, we're lost. When all I have to do is fiddle with the past and make you believe what I want in the present. If the meaning of life really begins with you, the answer is pretty shallow. 
Hey, sportsmen. Time for the 2008 Sportsman Outreach Bank. The New Mexico State Fairground. Manuel Lujan. We have Joey Hancock, outdoor television personality. Special musical guest, Clifton Jansky, nationally recognized songwriter and performer. We'll have entertainment, outdoor sports vendors and demonstrations, thousands of dollars in door prizes, and all-you-can-eat dinner. It's only 30 bucks. On July 19th, doors open at 3 p.m. and dinner at 5. Program starts at 6. Stand again with us while we sing.
Would you be seated and would you just bow your heads with me and just draw that imaginary circle around your life as if you were the only place in this whole auditorium just you and the Lord just being in, in, in fellowship with him and just go right into the throne room right now we're going to prepare our hearts for our giving this morning but also just just preparing our hearts just coming before him just praising him and loving him so just Spend this time in the quietness of these moments, just you and the Lord. Ask him if there's anything in your life this morning that might grieve or quench his spirit in any way. A sin you've not confessed, an attitude, something there that just needs to be dealt with. Just ask him to reveal that to you. And remember that confessing sin is one thing, agreeing with him. But repentance is never promising to do better. You don't do better. Jesus didn't come to renew your flesh. Jesus came to replace it. It's a big difference in commitment and surrender. Huge difference. You just bow before him. Lord, I can't. You never said I could. You can. You always said you would. Victory is not you overcoming sin. It's Jesus overcoming you. We're still continuing in the midst of the 4th of July time, and it makes us think about our freedoms. It makes us think about our country, and just pray for our president. Pray for the leaders of our country. Pray for our men and women in uniform, wherever they are. Just pray for them. Pray for their families. Spend a little time just, just praying for them. Now ask the Lord, Lord, what would you have me to give today? Because this is a part of us worshiping him. We bring that back to him that he has already given to us. And just ask him, Lord, what would you have me to give? How would you have me to give today that you might be honored and glorified? And don't listen to men, listen to him and what he tells you to do. Just be willing to do it. And remember, his grace is his divine enabling power to do anything that he tells you to do. Father, we look to the north, we look to the south, we look to the east, we look to the west. We want everybody to know of the saving power of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you've put that burden on our hearts because, Lord, you have saved us. And Oh, dear Father, help us to, in these days to be your vessel, to want to see others come to know you. Thank you, Lord, it's you reaching them through us. And, Lord, as we're in this service today, we just ask that as we come to this special time of worship, Lord, we just ask that you speak to each of our hearts, and may we do what you tell us to do, and may this be about you. And Father, we just want to thank you that when you speak to us and we do what you tell us and the grace that you give to us, then, Lord, you're glorified, not us. So that's what we want more than anything, Father. In our offertory today, may you be honored and glorified. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers.
Father, thank you so much for just encouraging our hearts this morning with the purpose you have living in and through us as you shine that light so others can see. And Lord, I just thank you that that message of you can remove mountains. There may be somebody here today, Father. They might even be visiting and have a mountain in front of them. They don't see any way out. There is no way out except you. But Lord, you rescue us. You're the God of salvation. You and you alone can remove whatever mountain it is that's standing in front of someone today. And Father, I just pray that in my weakness, your strength will be made perfect as we come to the Word. Make it come alive, Lord. We have notes on a paper. Make it fresh and make it alive. Teach me as I seek to teach others. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, would you turn with me for the last time to the book of Jude. Some of you thought we'd never finish, but we did, or we are. Let's put it that way. The book of Jude. And today we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25. Many of you have asked me, what is next? We are going to do the book of Hebrews. But instead of starting next week, being in the middle of the summer when most of our people are here and there and everywhere, (laughs) and uh, also we have some other things coming up, probably I will begin that in the 1st of September, and we'll be doing some other things uh, as we finish out the summer. So today, Jude, verses 22 through 25. We've entitled this whole series, Snakes Around the Water. And we talked about that illustration being down in Mississippi where the snakes at night gather in the shallow, of, of shallow waters of those lakes. You know, it's interesting it's in a spiritual sense when believers refuse to get into the Word of God, just don't have time for it. There's just too much else going on. When they begin to live in the shallows of their faith, they don't realize it, but they don't, the snakes, that's where they pray. And they become fodder to a false teacher. False teacher loves a Christian that doesn't know why he believes what he believes and doesn't understand what the Word of God says. They love them. They're perfect for them, and they pray upon them. And so this whole little epistle, powerful as it is, has been talking about the false teachers, snakes that always hang around the shallows of the water. And today in this final message, I want to talk about watch your brother's back. Watch your brother's back. Now, you know, you've heard that term, watch your back, and in military terms and sports terms, but I wonder if you've ever thought about it in Christian terms. Watch your brother's back. If we're living in God's Word, as we saw last week in verse 20 and 21, allowing His Spirit to lead us in prayer according to His will and not ours, being kept in His love, which means we don't let the world tell us who we are. We let His love identify us as to whose we are. Looking forward to the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, then I can tell you what's going to happen. You're going to have a love for God's truth that's beyond anything that you've experienced before. So much so that you will be watching your brother's back when it comes to false doctrine because we know the damage that false doctrine can do to a believer's life. One of the sweetest things our son Stephen said to me one day, I was going through a particularly difficult time, and my son called me up and said, Dad, I just want you to know I love you, and I just also want you to know i got you back. I've got you back. That, that meant a lot to me. He's watching out for me. If believers would watch each other's back, when it comes to the lure of false teaching and wrong thinking, then think about it just for a second. Think about how strong the church would really be in the 21st century if we would just watch out for one another. Aren't you grateful for Priscilla and Aquila in Scripture when they came alongside a man by the name of Apollos and helped him get his doctrine right? Acts chapter 18, verse 24 through 26. Let me just read that experience from Scripture. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but... When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God 
more accurately. They were watching his back. Oh, if we could just grasp this. But then again, the last few verses, he's told us how we're supposed to walk. If we're not going to live this way, then it's nothing more than the blind leading the blind. If we don't know what we believe, how can we watch out for somebody else when the error begins to infringe upon their lives? It's a terrible thing when the blind lead the blind. I was fishing in Lake Jackson, Tallahassee, in Tallahassee, Florida, fishing for a largemouth bass. And I was with a friend of mine. We grew up together. He was 6'5". We played ball together in college. We were going out on Lake Jackson for about the 10th time. We've been there many, many times as we went to a conference down in Florida. We'd always stop there for a couple days and fish. And my friend, that morning when we got down to the boat, and I both realized it had, the fog had really set in. You could not see five feet in front of you. In fact, when we got in the boat, I could not see my friend. And it was sort of eerie. You're talking to each other, but you can't see anybody. And you could hear other boats, and they were talking to each other, and you're in this fog. And we're going out across the lake, and, and Andy said, Wayne, are you sure you know where we are? Oh, yeah, Andy, I know where we are. We fished this lake a bunch of times. I know my way on this lake. I'm running the motor. Are you sure you know where we are? Oh, yeah, man, I got you. About that time, we hit the bank on the other side. <laughs> we hit it so hard, it threw my friend out of the boat and up on the beach. And he's laying there on his back saying, yep, he really knows where we are, you know. That's kind of what it's like. It's really what it's like when believers just won't get in the Word of God. You can beat them over the head. You can try to make them guilty. You can whatever you want to do. And if they just won't do it, and some won't, they leave their Bible sitting on a shelf and it gains dust all week long. Then they think that they can actually know what to do when a false teacher comes their way. They have no idea. And if the church doesn't know what it believes, then it's, again, it's the blind leading the blind. So the people that we're talking to here are the people that verse 20 and 21 have described, living up under the Word, under the influence of the Word, allowing the Holy Spirit of God to even lead them in prayer. They want nothing in their lives that's not accordance to His will. They're looking forward to His soon coming again, and therefore truth matters to them. Truth really matters to them, and they're going to watch out for their brother because they know the false teachers, like the snakes, are always preying upon those in the shallow water. Well, there are three things he tells us as we close out this marvelous little epistle. First of all, and there are three groups of people. Some people see this a little differently. I see all of these as Christians. But each one of them are at a different degree of falling into false doctrine. The first group is probably where most of us have been at one time or another, First of all, he says, be merciful to those who are listening but haven't given in to false teaching. They're listening. They're listening. But they haven't given in to it quite yet. Remember that these are the ones now that he's talking about that live in the shallows. These aren't the ones that are walk, walking under the influence of God's Word. These are the ones living in the shallows, not willing to go any further. And they're trying to get the best out of both worlds. They want the world, but they also want the church. They want what God offers them, but they want what the world offers them. And they're like a mugwump that sits on a fence with his mug on one side and his wump on the other. And they can't make up their mind which side they want to get on. These are the ones he's talking about. They're listening. They're listening. They haven't maybe given in yet. He says in verse 22, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Have mercy on some. Now, remember back in verse 2 of our little epistle where he says, May the mercy and peace and love of the Lord Jesus be multiplied to you. Now you see why. Because only the Lord Jesus can produce this mercy. We, we see why the mercy is not only needed individually, but it's going to be needed in great supply to be shown to the people who are falling into the trap of the false teachers. The word mercy is the word elio which is describing divine compassion that's never deserved. If anybody ever thinks they deserve mercy, they've missed the whole understanding of that word. It's something only God can produce. So you see, then, it has to come from a surrendered life. This is Jesus. This is living grace. This is Jesus being Jesus in a person's life. So that that mercy, not from us, but from him, will be shown to people who are beginning to fall into the trap of false doctrine. Have mercy on some. It's in the imperative mood, which means that this is not something that's optional. This is a command. 
This is not a suggestion. He's saying, I'm telling you now, have mercy on some. The first reflex that we should have if Christ is living his life in and through us, and we see somebody who's doubting, we see somebody who's listening to false doctrine, we begin to sense that they're going that way, it's to show compassion. Don't kick them out, don't criticize them, show compassion to them. The very use of the word some tells us that not everybody's going to do this. It's not everybody's going to fall into this trap of even listening, but some will when they hang out in the shallow water. Have mercy on some, and then he says, who are doubting. The word doubting is diacrino, diacrino. It means to struggle and make a judgment between two different things. Now, I want to make sure we understand that word. Here, it would be to struggle to discern between, is this truth or is this error? I'm, I'm, in a, I'm, a, I'm perplexed here. I, you see, when a person doesn't know the word, that's, where he, that's the dilemma he falls into comes from two words, and the word literally paints a picture for us. The words are, first of all, via, which means through or between, and then the word crino means to judge, to judge between two different things, to make a distinction between two things and say, this is this and that is that. That's the word via crino. That's the word that he's using here. When we do not study the Word of God, we hear era. And what happens is when we hear it and we don't really know what we believe, we begin to, to doubt what we thought we knew. And it's incredible how that happens. The more attention we pay to false doctrine, the more we doubt what we thought we already knew of truth from God's Word. Doubting causes us to leave the path of simply trusting God's Word. That's what doubting is all about. Hath God said, it started in the book of Genesis when the devil came to, to Eve. Hath God said, and when you begin to get that in your mind, that what happens is you begin to be blown by the winds of false doctrine, and they move us where this way, and they move us that way, and when we, are never, we never land. We don't have a standing place. James chapter 1, verse 6, James had a, had a real good handle on what it meant to doubt. He said, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. And then he explains that doubting. He says, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Doubting comes when we do not know nor obey, nor obey God's word. You know what the saddest thing that's going on in our time? They've done surveys. I don't have the surveys to show you on a screen, but they're horrific. They take evangelical churches and they ask them simple doctrines and how many of them even understand what they believe. And you would be horrified at what the church of Jesus Christ, who say they believe the words, who say they believe God, you'd be horrified at what we do not know, therefore we do not believe in the 21st century. For that reason, the false teachers say, hey, I know exactly where to go. Let's pray on the ones who say they know, because most of them will say it, but they really don't know it. The winds of false doctrine come along. So there are going to be those who will start listening. I've always said one of the best ways to defeat false doctrine is to live out what you say you believe. But another way is to just stop listening to it. The moment you start listening to it, that's when the doubts begin to come. That's when all of a sudden, well, I thought I believed this. Well, well oh, they said this, and, and they used the name of Jesus, and they even cried, and it looks so real, and I, I don't know. they got a bigger crowd over here than they do over here. So which one is it? And that's the dilemma. That's the first step. That's the first step when you start listening to it. Secondly, he says rescue those who are believing false teaching. Rescue the ones who have already fallen into its trap. They're not, they're not into a lifestyle yet, but they've, they've grabbed it. They've, they've taken it. It says in verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. When Jude says save others, he now refers to a different group. You have some who are listening. Yeah, they're listening. They, they're still, they're doubting. They're doubting. They're, that's the first step. But now there's a different group. He speaks of those who are now on the slippery slope of false doctrine. They're, they're falling into its fire. They're feeling the heat of it now. The fire is there. They're not just listening to it. But they've become convinced that what they're hearing is right. Maybe they've had an experience. Maybe they went on a retreat. Maybe it's something emotional. And now they're counting on that rather than what the Word of God truly says. 
they're becoming convinced. Remember that the false teachers don't build their teaching on God's Word. Remember that? We've studied that. It was on experience, feeling, but on that which appeals to the flesh. That's the appeal of false teaching. It will appeal to your flesh and to my flesh. It's great to believe what they say because that way there's no real accountability. That way there's no lifestyle that must be lived. This group has fallen for that kind of teaching, hook, line, and sinker. So he says, save others. The word save, yes, is a word we use for salvation from the penalty of sin as we talk about all of us birthed into the kingdom of God. But it's the word sozo, and it simply means to rescue somebody from danger. I believe he's talking about Christians all the way through here. I do not believe he jumps into an evangelistic mode here. I believe what he's saying is save those who have bitten, taken the hook, and now they're running with it. Save them. They're in the fire. The tense is present tense. It's Again, it's an imperative command. There's no option here. But the present tense tells me that this rescue is not going to happen in a moment, like when we're saved from sin. But this present tense tells me this is going to be a process. But it took them a while to get there. It's going to take them a while to get them out. It's going to take a resolve. It's going to take only the Holy Spirit of God to give that divine persistence in your effort to try to rescue them out of of the slippery slope they have slidden into. Again, this is the group that has bought the lie, and they are entering the fires of false doctrine. So he says again, save others. And then he says, snatching them out of the fire. The word for snatching is an interesting word. The word snatching is the word harpezo. Harpezo is the word that literally means to reach into something and snatch them out. Kind of like when your children (laughs) are doing something they shouldn't, and mama comes in and reaches in and snatches them out. (laughs) My mother did that a lot when I was growing up. Once he was there, now he's gone. Where'd he go? I don't know. Is, your, is his mother around here somewhere? Yeah, I know where he is. It's the word that is used in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, to describe being caught up in the clouds with the Lord Jesus. And I just love this. There's so many people who say, Wayne, the word rapture is not in Scripture. I know, you're exactly right. Well, see, there, I told you, Wayne. Well, no, wait a minute. Where did the rapture come from? Where did the word rapture come from? The word harpego means to snatch up. When they put the Latin Vulgate together, they tried to come up with a word that would capture that idea. And the only word they could come up with was a bird that would swoop down and snatch something out of the midst, a lamb out of the flock or whatever. And they came up with the word raptor. And the word raptor that was in the Vulgate finally was translated over into English one day through the Greek, and it ended up being rapture. Well, I be. Oh, boy, it just simply means to snatch up. Snatch them out of the fire. It's going to be a process. It's not not so much an event as you would think of it because it puts it in the present tense, and it's also not just one, but get as many as as you possibly can. Out of the fire shows that they're already in the fire. The word ek uh, means to be taken out of something, something that you're within. The word fire, the word pur here, is simply the word that it gives us a vivid imagery here. When you think of false doctrine, think of fire. Now, fire can be helpful. It can cook and all, but this is not what we're talking about. You think of it in a damaging sense. If you have to rescue somebody from it, it's got to be hurtful. So fire destroys. Fire hurts. It's used possibly to suggest, and I'm sure this is a part of it, the loss of joy and the loss of experiencing Christ in a person's life that has bitten into false doctrine. You watch. You watch. When it becomes anything other than Jesus, you do not see the fruit of the Spirit of God in their lives. You do not see that, that radiancy of only Christ manifesting himself in and through their life. Fire ravages. Fire ravages. Snatch them out. Get them out. It's going to be a process, but get them out of that fire. If they've fallen into it, if they've listened to it, and they've bought it hook, line, and sinker, have compassion on them and try to snatch them out of the fire. Some are just listening and as a result are beginning to doubt. But the next step is when they've stepped on that slippery slope and they've slipped into false doctrine. Now they're feeling the heat of it and they begin to realize the destruction of it. Because only Christ can give what he says he'll give. And when a person centers his life, I, I was doing a conference with, with Brother Roy Hessian, 
who wrote the book, The Calvary Road, who wrote nine Christian classics. I think my Calvary Road was even a better book than, he, than The Calvary Road. But he and I were doing a, a, a seminar in Mississippi, and I made this statement. I said, Jesus is the only well that a person ever should be drinking from. I finished the message, and a man walked up to me. Roy was standing right beside me. He walked up to me, and he said, Preacher, I, I'm upset with you. And, uh, okay, he said, I'm also upset. He said, you've offended not only me, but you've offended the Holy Spirit of God. Well, I wasn't worried about him, but I was concerned about offending the Holy Spirit. And I said, what did I do? He said, you never mentioned him in your message. You only talked about Jesus. Now listen to what I'm saying. You never talked about the Holy Spirit. I said, that's interesting. Romans 8 9 says it's the Spirit of Christ. And I said, not only that, I haven't offended him. I've complimented him. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will never speak of himself. He will only speak of me. And I said, I've complimented him, my friend. And I could tell by the, the attitude of this individual, the mean spirit. He's in a fire. Something has happened, and he slipped into the fires of false doctrine, and it's ravaged the life and the love and the light that should be shining out of his life. He didn't approach me with mercy. He didn't approach me with compassion. But see, this is exactly what happens. person gets away from Jesus, you can write it down. The fire begins to ravage his life. False doctrine is a serious threat to the lives of those who profess to be believers. Some are listening, as I said. Others are slipping into it. Show compassion to the ones who are listening and teach them the truth. But raise the level in an intentional way when they've fallen into it. For those who are feeling the heat of the fire, raise the level. And it's going to take much more effort energized by the Spirit of God to, to redeem them from the fire that they've bought into. Thirdly, approach those who are deeply embedded into false doctrine with extreme caution. The third group will be the toughest to ever rescue from the grip of false teaching. In a careless effort to rescue them, the danger is one may fall into their the same trap because their doctrine is so appealing. How many of you in here have ever trained to be a lifeguard? Anybody in here besides John Sondager? <laughs> I don't know why John would, because when he jumps in the water, the water's gone anyway. But anyway, a lifeguard. Do you know what a lifeguard does? When the first thing they teach you is, when you start approaching a drowning victim, what do you do? You don't reach out and say, I'm here to save you. Oh, no, you go underwater. And you get down by their legs, you turn them around, and you work their way up. And then you grab one of their arms, pull it across, put them under their neck. Why? Because the first thing they're going to do is to drag you down. And you don't have one person drowning. You have two people drowning. And this is the danger of this group right here. When a person has gone so far as to become embedded in that which he falsely believes, look out because he wants you where he is. And he will try to now pull you into his midst. Jude says, on some have mercy with fear. That's the third group. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. The word mercy in this case is coupled with the word fear. And that's a good way to do it. The word fear is phobos, a dread. It's, it's a fright. It's, a, it's an awesome respect of something. Know what you're dealing with. I was watching the History Channel last night on snakes. And a guy reached down to catch a snake, and he caught it too far back from the neck. And, and the thing, before he even realized it, spam, and bit him. And that was interesting to watch him get, get the guy loose from that. Be real careful. Because when you go to try to help someone get out of something they're deeply and now embedded into, look out. They're going to suck you right into their same trap if you're not careful. So have mercy, yes, but with fear. The word mercy, again, is, is